I'm just going to start with listing and talking about what I think are the most important neurochemicals for individuals to be aware of. Certainly, this will help you make informed choices if you ever encounter any of the common challenges to well being. Dopamine is where we'll start. It's an excitatory neurotransmitter, which means it increases the neural firing and communication between neurons. Dopamine is essentially the reward neurotransmitter in the brain. It's involved in motivation, fixated states of interest, and the secretion of dopamine occurs when we expect a reward or survival advantage, something that will make people appreciate us, something that will provide us with food, shelter, something that gives us an advantage. Dopamine is exciting. The irregularity and unpredictability of rewards actually triggers dopamine and engages and addicts this uh, pursuit. Too little dopamine contributes most profoundly to depression, anhedonia, which is, anhedonia is a lack of joy and reward in life. It's responsible for states of apathy and an extreme lack of motivation. What we call depression is very, very, very commonly symptomatic of diminished presence of dopamine in key regions of uh, left frontal regions of the brain, which are associated with volition, making choices of actions we're going to take. So raising dopamine is the first line of treatment when someone presents to a psychiatrist or a doctor or a clinic with lack of joy, meaning, purpose, motivation in their life. If you're a psychiatrist, the first thing you probably would do would be to prescribe a drug called Welbutrin, which keeps dopamine present and prevents it from being reabsorbed by the neuron. So neurotransmitters work when they're in the synapses, the space between the neurons. And so uh, most antidepressants work by keeping neurotransmitters in those spaces, those clefts between neurons. And if you're depressed, you would go and get what's known as a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, something that keeps dopamine present, and that would most likely be Welbutrin. If you didn't want to go to a psychiatrist and you felt a sustained period of lack of motivation, engagement by life, many people will try the supplement tyrosine, which is a precursor of dopamine. Uh, and there's other ways to raise dopamine levels. Uh, people who consume a lot of probiotics, uh, people who get a lot of sun, and of course, getting enough sleep has been shown to raise dopamine levels. Now, just as there can be too little dopamine, which results in depression, anhedonia, lack of reward, people can have also too much. And too much dopamine has just as many significant drawbacks as having too little. 
Too much dopamine is associated with psychosis, paranoia, uh, inability to sleep. Um, when people have bipolar disorder, which is a, uh, a lack of regulation in neurotransmitters, the most prominent is that they go through long periods where their dopamine levels are very, very high. And so they believe they've, because of the dopamine and the fixated attention and energy and reward and all that, they think that they've figured out man manically, they'll believe they've figured out the mysteries of the universe. Some will eventually wind up walking down busy streets naked uh, or dressed as Jesus and, you know, proclaiming uh, what they believe to be the truths of the universe. Um, drugs that raise dopamine levels are notorious for creating uh, psychosis. What raises uh, dopamine? Well, that would be, of course, cocaine and speed, which, of course, are associated with overuse, with paranoia, anxiety, and, of course, once again, uh, difficulty sleeping, mania, and eventually a great deal of stress. So if somebody presents with bipolar disorder where they have an, uh, too much dopamine, they would be put on a drug that caps the amount of dopamine synaptically present. Well, what is that? That would be called a, a typical antipsychotic. And they're very uh, frequently now used, especially in pretty much any uh, clinic and psychiatric ward. Uh, they're one of the most prescribed. <clears throat> if you've ever heard of drugs like Abilify, Seroquel, Risperdal, Zyprexa, and Latuda, those are classic uh, atypical antipsychotics. They help when people are in manic states or are experiencing hallucinations. But if you were experiencing what you believe to be a uh, high amount of dopamine without taking uh, an atypical antipsychotic, one way you could do reduce dopamine levels would be through uh, serotonin, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, uh, upregulating the amounts of serotonin you have. Also, there's a, a very common, easy to find um, herb called bacopa, which reduces dopamine. Now, no conversation about dopamine would be complete without noting that it's very much uh, at the epicenter of, all, of the bulk of human addictive behaviors. Um, dopamine is secreted for only a short period of time and it's reabsorbed very quickly. Evolution didn't want us to feel rewarded for very long when we accomplished things. So it saw to it that after we uh, acquired food or some form of survival advantage, we'd enjoy it for a little while, and then it would recede synaptically, and then we'd need more of it. Um, so <clears throat> the most addictive behaviors 
and the human experience, things like shopping, binge eating, uh, TV watching, addiction to screens, addiction to uh, iPhones, and addiction to news, addiction to uh, gambling, all of these are associated with dopamine. Dopamine rewards the engagement. Dopamine creates the excitement, the expectation that life will be great if I just buy this thing or uh, eat this food or uh, if I consume this cocaine or whatever. All of these addictive behaviors are associated with searching for dopamine. And unfortunately, what happens is eventually we need more and more dopamine to get less and less because the brain habituates to over secretion very quickly to get less and less reward. And over time, if people become addicted to substances like speed and cocaine, the brain loses the ability to, on its own, produce and secrete dopamine. So when people stop taking the cocaine and the speed, they no longer have any ability to neurally generate feelings of joy, engagement, reward. And so they plummet into the most miserable kinds of depression. So very often when people give up cocaine and speed and go into recovery, they're given something that raises their dopamine levels to help their brain uh, keep some amount of dopamine reward and engagement present so they don't become depressed and they get put on Wellbutrin. So that's a basic overview of dopamine. And uh, at the end, when there's questions, I'd be happy to answer questions about any of these. Obviously, I'm running, going to run through them fairly quickly, and it's a lot to cover. So uh, the second most, in terms of importance, uh, neurotransmitter, in terms of well-being, would by any account be serotonin. Serotonin, unlike dopamine, doesn't excite or stimulate. It does the opposite. It relaxes. It regulates moods. It reduces intrusive thoughts. It reduces anxiety. It helps us sustain appetite, and it helps digestion. The body needs serotonin for so many different processes, including, as I recall, to produce melatonin, which regulates our sleep. Um, serotonin is involved in the production of new brain cells. When people suffer deficits of serotonin over time, Alzheimer's and dementia become a far more likely prospect. And interestingly enough, when people are put on certain antidepressants, there's studies that indicate that they might be less uh, vulnerable to dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Too much serotonin is a pretty rare uh, event. It can happen and produce a terrible state called serotonin syndrome, but I really wouldn't recommend worrying about it. Um, and serotonin syndrome does have seizures associated and can be lethal. But the thing is, uh, 
you really have to be pretty um, irresponsible or your or a psychiatrist has to be pretty irresponsible to let it happen. Essentially, what happens is when we take two or more drugs that elevate serotonin levels in a rather extreme way, or somebody who's on a SSRI, serotonin reuptake inhibitor, consumes a drug like LSD or ecstasy, and that can induce it. Um, in general, the challenges that most people have is too little serotonin, which is why so many millions upon millions of Americans, as well as hundreds of millions of people abroad are on uh, antidepressants that raise their serotonin levels and help reduce anxiety and intrusive thoughts. Um, drugs that are SSRIs commonly for example, if you've ever heard of Prozac, I'm sure you probably have. Uh, if you've heard of Lexapro or Zoloft or Effexor, those are some of the many, many, many myriad of ways to raise serotonin. There's also uh, other ways like uh, trazodone and tricyclic antidepressants and all of them synaptically in different ways raise serotonin. Serotonin can, uh, certain drugs can help sleep with it. Uh, it's involved in uh, uh, so many important, uh, if dopamine is what rewarded in evolution, going out and hunting and gathering food, serotonin is what rewarded us for coming home and made us able to relax and settle and enjoy uh, the togetherness of our bonds with the clan or tribe that we were members of. So they both played very important roles in our survival. Um, what lowers serotonin and creates makes us more liable to uh, anxiety and intrusive spiraling thoughts is isolation um, uh, and compulsive behaviors. Uh, but isolation is pretty much the most efficient way if you want to reduce your serotonin levels and if you're looking to become more anxious and uh, uh, incapable of regulating thoughts, lack of connection with others has been shown to directly lower the levels of serotonin. So, if you want to raise your serotonin level and reduce anxiety, what the most thing, the most important thing is to uh, seek out interpersonal connection. Moderate exercise certainly helps. Like dopamine, sunlight helps with producing serotonin. Massages, having somebody give you a half hour massage has been shown to significantly raise serotonin. And uh, meditation is one of the, uh, this is one of the many ways that meditation helps us. It significantly raises levels of serotonin found in urine samples and in saliva samples and all that. So meditation really helps with anxiety uh, for so many reasons, including shrinking the amygdala, but one of the most prevalent is that it upregulates serotonin, which helps your brain relax. 
Now, another way, another neurotransmitter that helps your brain relax, which is also very important, as we'll see, is GABA. GABA, which is short for GABA immunobutric acid. I don't recommend you uh, learn that. It won't help you in any parties. Nobody cares. And uh, it's impossible to pronounce. And it's a waste of brain cells because everybody calls it GABA. Uh, just like serotonin, it inhibits the activity of neural firing and communication. And just like serotonin, it controls fear and anxiety. It uh, reduces the activation of your sympathetic nervous system, which is associated with fight and flight behaviors when we feel our uh, survival is at stake. When we take GABA or raise the GABA levels, it lowers the stress hormone cortisol. It allows, it promotes sleep, muscle relaxation. It has the opposite effect of adrenaline on the brain and body. It helps us like serotonin to relax. It's more uh, immediate. Serotonin is a very slow acting. It's slow to build up. GABA can be raised very quickly. So how do people raise GABA very quickly? Well, there's a thing called alcohol. People drink and they drink because they want the social lubrication, the reduction and self-consciousness and anxiety that social gatherings cause. And alcohol is the number one way that people, without realizing it, raise their GABA levels. Uh, if people don't drink, and they are subject to anxiety disorders. They're very often give, given a slightly better solution than alcohol, which is benzodiazepines, such as clonopin, Ativan, lorazepam, Xanax, and Valium, and so forth. Uh, those are exogenous ways to raise GABA, and many of them have very, very long half-lives, such as a full day. Some of them are very short like lorazepam with only about five or six hours. But the problem is with both alcohol and benzos is one, they're very, very addictive. And over a short period of time, people can become reliant on them. And if they stop, their brain will lose the ability on its own to secrete and sustain enough GABA. So if people start taking benzos for a long period of time and then stop, or if they drink for a very long time and then they stop drinking, then they have too little GABA and they become very, very prone to anxiety and um, intrusive spiraling repetitive thoughts that won't let them sleep. So <clears throat> another problem with alcohol that most people don't realize is, and benzos is that they actually disrupt a very important part of sleep, which is stage four sleep. That's the deepest form of sleep that where we dream and have uh, memories formed. And so people can get what's called drunk sleep where they don't really um, fully relaxed. They're not fully restored the next day. They've had sleep, but in many ways, it's a insubstantial form of sleep. So long-time alcoholics very often have very, very poor 
functioning temporal lobes with memory damage. And all of that's due to the fact that they've taken exogenous GABA for far too long. If you want to get the benefits of GABA without the drawbacks of consuming alcohol or benzodiazepine, the simplest way uh, in terms of supplements is to go out and get theanine. L-theanine is derived from green tea. And when you hear that, you might think, well, green tea, isn't that a stimulant? Green tea is a stimulant, but theanine, interestingly, is a relaxant. It doesn't activate. It actually is an anxiolytic that reduces anxiety. When people have nightmares, if they take 400 milligrams of theanine before they go to sleep, many people find that it significantly reduces the prevalence of anxiety, sleep, or nightmares. Meditation um, increases levels of GABA sensitivity, which means the neural receptors in your brain that process GABA become far more sensitive and you get the benefits of what GABA you have much stronger. So people who meditate generally like the upregulation of serotonin, they feel less anxious. Over time, people who rely on alcohol experience less and less neural uh, natural secretion of GABA. So it's very important to address daily drinking from this perception, from this perspective. This brings us to the love uh, hormone and neurotransmitter. Uh, gaining more and more uh, recognition these days. So far between dopamine uh, and serotonin, I'm sure you've heard of those words before, but up until about 10 years ago, if, when I would talk about oxytocin, no one had a clue. They almost invariably thought I was talking about oxycontin, which is not at all the same thing. Oxytocin is the love hormone and neurotransmitter. It amplifies uh, the effects of social interactions. It's engaged, it's deeply involved in our ability to experience empathy, trust. It's what bonds people who are in love together. It's what creates the bliss in the aftermath of sex. Um, and like the serotonin and like GABA, it also reduces stress. Uh, oxytocin was first probably over in evolution developed for the brain because it what is what bonds mother and infant together, especially the mother when she's with her infant experiences a raise in dopamine levels that can go up to 300, 500%. And if we didn't have oxytocin, we would be one of those species that gave birth and then would lose interest in our offspring pretty quickly. So oxytocin is, in general, it amplifies interpersonal events. Most of the time, positive interpersonal events. There are some studies that show that it may also be involved in when people go through breakups and uh, re social rejections. Oxytocin might play a role in the emotional pain, but in general, it's far more associated with bonding 
and togetherness it's the glue that makes us want to stick with attachments in our life species that have high levels of oxytocin are species that tend to mate together and human beings have significant levels of oxytocin if you want to raise oxytocin if you want the benefits of some of the blissful feelings and the reduction in stress that it can afford hug someone or listen really empathetically and attentively to someone as they talk don't get lost in your own thoughts pet a cat or a dog or soak in a tub there's meditations that raise uh oxytocin as barbara fredrickson at the i think she was at the university of north carolina has shown in her clinical research meta meditation where we wish uh kindness and well-being to all other species has been shown to significantly raise oxytocin levels um and uh positive interactions with other human beings chocolate has been shown to raise oxytocin levels as well so marching on we're really covering quite a lot today uh the people are well aware of adrenaline which is a, a stress and uh and a hormone that rewards us for taking agency in stressful situations well the neural equivalent is sometimes known as noradrenaline more properly known as norepinephrine or norepinephrine depending upon who's pronouncing it i say norepinephrine uh essentially it's not a bad thing people hear adrenaline and they think oh that's just makes me uncomfortable but actually adrenaline is the healthy mobilizing nor norepinephrine is the healthy mobilizing uh uh hormone that increases the activity when we are uh, encounter a challenge it it focuses our attention it creates agency during prolonged stress norepinephrine is elevated it creates a state of arousal it over time uh if it we run out of adrenaline then the stress hormone cortisol will step in and that's when we wind up with chronic anxiety chronic stress and so forth but norepinephrine in and of itself is rarely associated with the bad side effects of stress it simply mobilizes us to face a real challenge if you walk into the middle of a street and suddenly a car honks at you the noradrenaline is what alerts you to move in your mind and then, and the adrenaline in your body helps your body get that jolt of energy when people have too little norepinephrine they experience or more liable to experience brain fog and depression and attention deficits so uh, very often drugs that regulate serotonin also will regulate norepinephrine drugs such as effexor and of course anything that stimulates the mind that works on uh where we when people uh uh play sports and so forth that can upregulate 
their norepinephrine levels, when people take walks outdoors and so forth. Endorphins. What are endorphins? Well, they're our natural opioid system. Yes, while out in the world, there's things like heroin and uh, uh, fentanyls and all these really horrific kinds of exogenous opioids that can kill people uh, and people chase after them because if they don't kill them, they create states of bliss. Uh, the brain actually has 20 different kinds of opioids or endorphins, which are secreted during exercise, excitement, when we're in a degree of sudden pain and sexual activity. All of the endorphins can increase our level of well-being and in high amounts after really strenuous exercise, people can even experience mild states of euphoria. Uh, endorphins actually turn off the dopamine, excess dopamine, and helps relieve us of chronic craving, chronic addiction. So when people exercise, it's a wonderful way to get over opiate addictions, especially running and so forth. Exercise, dance, long periods, laughing, dark chocolates and spices all help uh, not only help us reduce chronic pain, but also help us experience some of the bliss of endorphins. I would recommend pretty much anything rather than taking the exogenous forms associated with substances ranging from kratom all the way to uh, heroin and um, uh, uh, other uh, uh, opioid substances out there like, uh, uh, I think, uh, 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 well, uh, oh, well, uh, blocking them right now, but fentanyl and uh, other painkillers, Oxycontin and so forth. So let's move on to a last couple few, and then we'll talk about uh, how to use me meditation to increase neurobalance. Uh, the last two I'll mention, one is melatonin. I'm sure you've heard of that in regards to regulating sleep. It also helps our circadian rhythms and adapt to different seasons. Um, when people are over long-term periods of stress, it can interrupt melatonin. Uh, there are differing opinions when people experience insomnia as to whether uh, to consume melatonin products. In general, the best bet is to first raise your serotonin levels before you try to address with um, melatonin. If you do, there are some good sublingual 10 milligram uh, out there uh, tablets of melatonin that are well-sourced that you can get. Uh, in general, it will, though, in the morning after, it, because it's secreted for very long periods of time, it can make you very groggy the next day. And lastly, for the list of neurotransmitters worth, and obviously I'm leaving it a lot, but I will give a shout out to glutamate. 
Glutamate is the most common neurotransmitter. It's exciter, it stimulates brain function. It's engaged in memory formation and cell growth and focused attention. If you have too much, it's very toxic to the brain. After people have strokes, their glutamate levels skyrocket to help with uh, um, cell growth, but oddly or ironically, it actually leads to more and more cell death. It's only in moderate amounts that glutamate helps produce new neurons. Too much is also associated with Alzheimer's disease, but too little can be just as disastrous as well. It's associated with exhaustion, irritation, and low concentration. Um, when people have long period of sustained cognitive activity, staring at computer screens or Zoom meetings, where they're narrowly focusing their attention on a small area and they don't feel permitted to look away, video games being the worst, um, uh, what happens is the uh, glutamate levels plummet because the glutamate is what allows us to sustain that kind of focused attention. And when glutamate and glucose plummets in the brain, then another neurotransmitter, which you don't have to know about, but I'll just mention it, adenosine comes in and it steps in and it stimulates the production of more glutamate. But while it does that, it stops the production of dopamine. So what happens is over time, when people are in long-term Zoom meetings or play video games for too long or look at laptops for too long or look at anything that narrowly strains and, and focuses their attention, uh, what will happen is they'll, in running out of glutamate, and in adenosine stepping in to stimulate the production of more, the all the feelings of reward and joy and engagement with life starts to deplete. And then we wind up what was commonly called in the pandemic, Zoom fatigue, a state of exhaustion and so forth. If you don't wanna experience mental fatigue, the most important things to do are one, give yourself permission to disengage your your focused attention from activities and allow your brain to rest to regenerate more glutamate um, number two don't engage in multitasking because every time people jump from one task to another they have to use up a lot more glutamate to reorient them to the new task if you do have to use zoom calls sometimes see if you can turn off the camera as many of you have chosen to do so that you don't feel you have to look at the screen and you can close your eyes and just listen and interact but you don't feel seen by others and that will give you permission to not folk narrowly focus your attention and so when people studies have shown that when people have to stay on interactive calls with video, they become fatigued much quicker than if they spend the time on the phone where they don't have to narrowly focus their attention on the screen. So our brains have evolved to keep us more stimulated and alert than 
satisfied, which is why so many of us have uh, higher levels of cortisol and chronically chase after dopamine rather than appreciate and have enough serotonin and GABA. The over-reliance on dopamine activities, which while they can make us feel good, they make us feel good for a very short period of time. If we chronically rely on them as a way to regulate our mood, much like staring at social media apps like Facebook and Instagram and so forth, has been shown to actually create greater states of addiction because we're chasing after dopamine, which has a very, very, very short half-life when it's naturally secreted. In general, a better approach to finding happiness in life is to upregulate serotonin and GABA, which reduce stress and allow us to relax and experience tranquility. Tranquility, it turns out, is a much more sustainable neural state than seeking excitement and stimulation, which are very, very transient and lead to addiction. One of the best ways to produce tranquility is concentration meditations. Uh, pretty much all of the neurotransmitters that relax the mind, allow us to achieve some degree of self-soothing, are associated with resting our attention on a very, very neutral ongoing sensation that we don't have to put any effort or energy into uh, finding or locating it. Uh, we can, it's simply present. And in sustaining our attention over time, studies show we release just enough dopamine that we stay engaged and attentive, but we're also upregulating the levels of serotonin and GABA and making the brain more sensitive to GABA. So it's kind of meditation can be the ideal approach to uh, not only auto-regulating the mind, but in terms of seeking any form of uh, mood regulation and self-soothing. So for tonight's meditation, we're going to be doing a very old school Anapanasati meditation, one of the oldest meditations that the Buddha taught. And I just want to thank you for listening to tonight's overview of brain hacking, how to raise and lower your levels of neurotransmitters, why they're important, how they affect your mental well-being. And of course, if you'd like to support my work, it's on Venmo's Dharma Punks NYC, and Dharma Punks is with an X. So thanks. Let's find a really comfortable seated position. And if you want, you can lie down on a floor or a couch or a bed, uh, or you can meditate sitting upright. If you lie down on a bed and you're prone to falling asleep, just raise gently one hand above your chest. So it's like cocked at the elbow and your hand is uh, hovering just above your chest, just that small amount of energy 
uh, in lying down meditations can keep us awake, but it doesn't require so much effort and it doesn't produce any stress. So we're going to close the eyes and we're going to bring our attention back into the body, no longer putting the effort into staring at uh, the Zoom images on the screen. So tonight I'm going to guide uh, practice based on the breath, but for those of you who don't enjoy focusing attention on the breath, just bring your awareness to the sounds that surround you. The sounds in your direct environment, the sounds that are very close, perhaps sounds from your apartment. I right now have a very hyperactive cat, one of my three cats that is demanding to be uh, paid attention to, so I can hear her constant uh, outraged howls in the background. And also distant sounds. I can hear in the distance sounds of cars about a block away. people talking down on the street. But I'm going to be guiding the Anapanasati, the breath. So bring your attention just to any place in your body where you can sense the breath, the in-breath, and the out-breath. And the basic instructions go, these are some 2,500-year-old practices. The instruction basically is to simply know when you're breathing in and when we're breathing out. So we're just going to start there. Just You don't have to know whether the breath feels good or bad, whether worry about whether there's other body sensations or anything. You're just knowing, am I breathing in or am I breathing out? Or if neither, just some space in between the out-breath and the next in-breath, just know that. Try not to change the way you're breathing. At first, just allow yourself to breathe any old way. So for some people, they might rest their attention on the tip of the nose. I've never found that area to be that satisfying or... uh, interesting enough to keep my attention for very long. I like to focus my attention on the sensations of the in-breath and out-breath in my 
abdominal area or my chest, the expansions and contractions, the Buddha never said what was the right place to focus attention. So many people have opinions about where the right place or wrong place is, but really it's up to each individual to locate the area of the body that lets them know when they're breathing in or out and just rest their attention on that area. And the following instructions are just to become aware of whether we're breathing out in a very long, relaxed way or breathing in in a long, relaxed way, or if the breath feels very cut off. Buddha literally said, knowing if we're breathing in long or short. So just become aware of the length of your breath.
Now at this point, become aware of whether you feel very comfortable in your body right now, how your body feels relaxed, or if your body feels tense, uncomfortable. For example, if your shoulders feel tight and uh, clenched, or if your shoulders feel released, if your muscles in your forehead feel very tight or smooth, muscles in the face feel released or kind of frozen in some kind of affect. If your chest feels tight or open, if the energy is flowing easily through your body, just notice what kind of, whether you call your present state comfortable or uncomfortable or neither. And then in this part of our meditation, just see if you can breathe in a way that allows your body to feel more and more comfortable, relaxed. For some people, breathing into a soft belly. For some people, breathing the energy moving up into the chest in this very long, full in-breaths and very long, slow releases from the chest. For some of the very subtle sensations of air entering, leaving the tip of the nostrils. So just find some way to breathe that relaxes and conditions, influences your body to achieve a greater degree of comfort.
Now become aware of the state of the mind in terms of nonverbal experience of the mind. Does your mind feel very relaxed? Maybe it's too tired, drifting off almost into sleep, or maybe your mind's very jumpy, bouncing around from different things to pay attention to. Maybe you'll find the mind feels very dark or claustrophobic, or sometimes the mind can feel very spacious and open. Sometimes we can feel very far away from the world around us. Sometimes everything can be engulfing. So what is the quality of the mind? What the Buddha called the citta? What's the mood that you're in? Does the mood feel a kind of blissful or happy or sad or frustrated or some form of uh, excitement or boredom or loneliness or uh, interest. So many different emotional states, many of them blending together or happening all at once. But in general, noting what quality of mind is see if you can now use your breath in a way to make your mind feel, as the Buddha said, a little bit more brighter, luminous, spacious, content. And that can mean really emphasizing the length of the out-breath raises a level of oxytocin reduces cortisol. For some of us, it might mean changing the area of the body we're observing the breath to another area or breathing into. Imagine you could breathe into your eyes. Sometimes people find that relaxes the mind. Just be creative. See how you can breathe in a way that makes the mind a more pleasant experience.
And lastly, the brain very often has a lot of thoughts, memories, images, content arising and passing. Very often we can get caught up in those thoughts or images or memories or uh, the various flotsam and jetsam that is constantly being churned, churned up into the level of consciousness. And so the fourth quality of and last quality of this meditation the Buddha instructed is to see if we can breathe in a way that allows us to observe things arising and passing without being caught up. Without being immersed in or overly engaged in any thought or memory or image or idea that pops into the mind just to stay, find a breath that allows you to stay with the breathing and just note whatever's arising and passing, whatever ideas or images are seeking your attention. And you don't push anything away. You don't latch on to anything. You just observe thoughts passing through the mind like waves pass through an ocean or clouds pass through a sky. If you use the surfing metaphor, sometimes if a wave in an ocean is like a levels of excitement or ideas or thoughts that pass through, and you're a surfer, you don't have to ride every wave. You choose once in a while one to ride, but most of the time you're just observing them passing. hopefully waiting for a wave that's appropriate and skillful, a skillful thought. Like, how can I relax in this meditation? But just find a breath that allows you to be with thoughts without being that clinging to thoughts are triggered by them.
So at this time, we're going to bring the meditation part of the evening to the close. So whenever it feels right for you, take your time and uh, just slowly uh, re-engage with the world around you in a way that's not too abrupt or stressful. <clears throat> 